My name is Tom Mickler, and I am really excited about today's show. Uh, we were very lucky this week to be able to catch up with Mr. Brian Kane, who is one of the top peak performance and mental training coaches in the U.S. Brian works with just about every top college program out there, Auburn, Ole Miss, Alabama, TCU, just to name a few. So uh, Brian came my way through my friend Tony Vitello, who's been on this show a few times. And if you've had a chance to hear Tony Vitello, you know he brings it and brings it big time as far as the information, the willingness to teach, and the passion for what he's doing. Brian is no different. These guys are cut from the same mold, and once they get rolling, they really like to share what they know. So I'm excited for everyone to have a chance to, uh, again, hear from Brian Kane today, especially for coaches, but not just coaches. And, again, you know, so many of the things that we talk about on this show, whether it's a role of an athlete or a parent or in the workplace, cuts across and can be applied to other areas of our life. And I'm going to it's another one of these shows where I'd say get a pencil and paper and be ready to write because as far as performance is concerned, Brian brings it in a very practical way, but he brings a lot of information. So, again, I'm your host, Tom Mickler, and at this point in time, we are joined by peak performance and mental conditioning coach Brian Kane. Brian Kane works with a number of the top college programs in the area. He's worked at the professional level as well, too. His background and his experience is very far-reaching, but we're going to talk with Brian today about the mental approach to to athletics and we may go a little bit beyond that we're going to hear about some of the books that brian's written we've got a lot of information for our listeners but right now i want to welcome brian king brian how are you sir tom i'm doing outstanding man it's truly a, a blessing to be able to spend some time with you and the listeners here today i'm fired up to be here well i thank tony vitello for connecting us tony's been on the show a couple times i heard tony speak in december at uh, an area high school here i'm sure he was presenting Probably an awful lot of your ideas, so maybe there's some crisscross between Tony and yourself, but I've had some exposure to your ideas through Tony, and I thought it was just great stuff, and I want to continue to offer it to our listeners, so let's just jump right into it. Brian, can you give us a little bit about your background personally as an athlete? Uh, what got you into the business? Uh, take it from there. Sure. I, I grew up in the small town of Williamstown, Massachusetts, northwest corner of, of uh, math, and I was a three-sport athlete in high school, you know, football, basketball, and baseball, and, um, you know, was, was successful in the three, ultimately baseball probably being the most successful, um, you know, was 21-2 and two as a high school pitcher in four years, and got a scholarship to the University of Vermont, uh, went to Vermont with high expectations to be, you know, the number one starter on the weekend as a freshman, was on a big scholarship, and I failed miserably. Uh, you know, I, I went in there not knowing any of the stuff that I'm teaching now mm-hmm. and not really having having any mental toughness because one of the problems that happens to high school athletes who are successful is they never fail. Mm-hmm. And when you when you go into the SEC or you go to where Tony is down in the Big 12 with TCU, I don't care how good you are, you're going to fail because you're now playing against the best of the best. And that was never really outlined for me or I just never I never understood that or was told to me I thought I could go to you know division one college baseball at the University of Vermont and roll in there and have the same success I had in high school by doing what got me there and you know that old saying what got you here won't get you there Hmm. Uh, when I got to Vermont you know I was a thrower not a pitcher Mm -hmm. and I was a guy who you know anytime I tried to, to anytime I got Adversity. I faced adversity in high school. I just threw harder. Mm-hmm. And when you try to do that in college, you get hit harder. So I go to Vermont, 
I'm not having a lot of success. I'm, I'm a workaholic. I'm trying to condition myself and do all these things. I'm lifting weights twice a day. I'm running. I'm just totally overtraining myself because I thought that to get better, I had to work harder. Mm-hmm. And what I've, built, what I've realized now, Tom, is that it's not always about working harder. It's about working smarter. Mm-hmm. Right. Because working, hard, working hard at the wrong things doesn't work. And that's exactly what I was doing. So, you know, I ended up having a shoulder surgery my junior year. At that point, uh, you know, any any aspirations of a professional career are out the window. And like everyone else who's playing baseball at the high school or college level, I thought I was going to play pro, and that was my whole life. And, right. you know, it's kind of at the time the worst thing that ever happened to me. But in hindsight, the best thing that ever happened to me uh, was having that shoulder surgery. Because that summer, I graduated from Vermont in 2001. It was the summer of uh, 2000. I was uh, working uh, down in Boston and went into a Barnes and Noble and walked to the sports section and checked out uh, a book called Heads Up Baseball. Mm-hmm. And for people listening to this, I highly recommend you get Heads Up Baseball. It has changed my life by a guy named Ken Revisa. Ken Revisa is the master of the mental game. He's had 25 years of Major League Baseball, you know, sports psychology experience with the Angels, the Dodgers, the Rays, and now back with the Angels. And Ken's a professor at Cal State Fullerton. So I read the book talking about simple things like control what you can control focus mm-hmm. on the process not the outcome just make a pitch you know take a deep breath to help you relax instead of you know telling an athlete hey go relax because <laughs> my entire career people always said brian you got to learn how to relax no right. one told me how right no one said take a breath as a part of your pre-pitch routine so you know i i, I write read the book love it send an email to ken revisa this is probably in July of 2000. He sends me a handwritten letter back. Uh, says, hey, we'd be interested in having you come out here if you want to do a master's in sports psychology. And at the time, Tom, I wanted to be a college baseball coach. Mm-hmm. And I thought, dude, if I can get a master's in, in the mental game of baseball with Revisa and I can be a grad assistant or volunteer at Cal State Forward, and I'm positioning myself pretty good to be a college baseball coach. Right. So 2001 fall, I go out to Cal State Fullerton. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a grad assistant in the baseball program. I'm at practice every day. I'm in the class every day with Ken Revisa, uh, you know, learning 30 credits of the mental game of baseball and sports psychology. And for two years, I had the absolute best possible experience you could have. Wow. I'm, with a, I'm a coach with Cal State Fullerton in baseball, seeing what they're doing, doing on the field. From a baseball standpoint, I'm a student with Ken Revisa. I'm shadowing and observing every time he's talking when working with a baseball team. And then I'm sitting in on the Fullerton baseball staff meetings and hearing about what they think that Ken do and can't do from what Ken taught them. And then I'm sitting with Ken and hearing what he thinks the baseball team should be doing that they're not doing and what they're doing well. And it was just like being an absolute, you know, fly on a wall in two of the best situations possible. And then, uh, you know, I'm seeing how that all works in 2003. We go out to Omaha to the College World Series as the number one team in the country. We beat LSU. We beat Stanford. We're one game away from winning and going to play Rice for the two out of three national championship. And we get beat twice by Stanford. Wow. And what we re- what I learned that day was that the best team never wins. Mm-hmm. You are better than Stanford. It's the team who plays the best. Mm-hmm. So we lose. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming back to Vermont uh, at that point in, 0, in 03. You know, I've been offered a teaching job in Vermont with a football and softball coaching position. And, you know, as a guy who's out in California with less than $1,000 to his name, I needed to find a way to put my six years of school uh, to work. 
So I moved to Vermont. I get a high school teaching job, coach football and softball. Realized teaching health is not what's for me. Um, and then I, you know, become a high school athletic director. Uh, and I'm an AD for seven years. And in 04, Fullerton wins a national championship. In 05, Dave Serrano, who is the pitching coach at Fullerton, is now the head coach at Irvine. In 06, he brings me in to work with Irvine as my first real mental game of baseball consulting experience. And in 06, I also hook up with TCU and Jim Schlossnagel, where Tony is now. Mm-hmm. And then, then in 07, uh, you know, that summer, Schlossnagel was on the staff of Team USA with Tim Corbin, the head coach at Vanderbilt. So in 07 was kind of my tipping point. And in 07, I had Irvine, TCU, Vanderbilt, and a guy named George St. Pierre, who's now the UFC world champion. And Vanderbilt was number one the entire year, had David Price and Pedro Alvarez and five other first-round picks on that team. Irvine mm. goes to Omaha third, you know, and TCU wins another conference championship and goes to a Super Regional. So I had you know all that exposure, per se, through their success and was starting to speak at clinics. And the next thing you know, I've got uh, four more teams, and it's kind of doubled every year and compounded since then. And uh, in 2011, I, I, I you know, took a sabbatical from being a high school athletic director to, and have not gone back. And I now have probably between 30 and, and you know, 50 teams I work with at any given time from oh, you know, yeah. one, day, uh, one day to 10 days over the course of the year. And, you know, between today, uh, January or February 14th and August 1st, I'm literally going to be staying in my house in Vermont eight days. So it's a grind. It's fast-paced. Uh, it's it's truly uh, the, the the best life I could ask for. I enjoy what I do every day. You know, I have a hard time going to sleep and an easy time getting up in the morning because I love right. what I do. I'm surrounded by the best coaches and athletes on the planet, and you know, I just I, I'm very very fortunate and blessed to be able to have found something that I love to do uh, and I'm able to do it at a high level. It's, it's really awesome. Well, what a difference that makes. You know, Brian, early on. Uh you talked about something that is so important when the athlete encounters some challenge, some difficulty. Uh, a great point as far as high school athletes usually don't really fail to the level they're probably going to if and when they take that next step. But for the athlete to realize that, you know, you're, you're going to make some mistakes. It's not going to be perfect all the time. It's not always going to be easy to overcome that, to accept that, to be able to play in the flow of the game. It's got to be just one of the building blocks that you work with, I would imagine, with athletes. Well, Tom, a lot of athletes, you know, they have a misconception of what failure really is. Failure is positive feedback. I mean, failure is information that's going to help you get better, and failure is an absolutely necessary stop on the road to excellence. You know, and and when people fail, they often take it personally, Mm -hmm. and they don't learn from it. You know, and and in life, if I ask this question to an audience, and I'll ask it to you, there are winners and what? There's winners and... Losers is the common thinking. That's the response I most commonly get, right? Sure. That's the response I commonly get, but it's not winners and losers, it's winners and learners. Mm -hmm. And Tom, the only time you're a loser is when you stop learning. And a lot of times, the mistake that winning makes, the problem with winning is winning hides the breakdown in fundamentals. And you win because you're, you know, playing against the inferior opponent. But what happens when you get into a big game or against somebody whose competition level is good is you get found out. And I think what happens a lot of times with the athletes in high school is they get by on physical talent. Mm-hmm. And when physical talent becomes even, now they don't know how to handle the adversity. They, ha- they, they think adversity is bad instead of embracing adversity and 
saying, let me use this to get better instead of using this failure to get bitter. And that's such a key part is, is being a learner, getting better, not bitter, getting fascinated with the pursuit of excellence, not frustrated with the adversity, uh, and really looking at that failure as positive feedback and trying to locate that black box like we do when a plane goes down and figure out, okay, why am I getting beat? Why am I not having the success that I want? And what, what is it I need to do and who is it I need to become to get me to where I want to go? You know, you brought that point out, Brian, as far as, you know, uh, failure, criticism, uh, whatever we might call it, we take that personally. And I think coming back to the high school athlete and before then the grade school athlete, now they have a lot of people behind them saying, you know, you're the star or we're really relying on you. Uh, they hear all that kind of feed, feedback in, in and of itself, but probably not too many people of them or around them are really challenging them. And what you've just done is you've just reframed uh, are what we call failures and into a learning opportunity. And I think right there, that's a huge piece. And, you know, that goes beyond athletics, doesn't it? Well, there's no question. I mean, you're, you're going to fail in life probably more than you succeed. Uh, and you've got to use failure as that springboard to success. You know, every step back is the opportunity for a bounce back or a comeback. And if you're not getting told no, if you work in sales, if you're not failing to try to go out and get bigger clients, or you're not failing in competition, you're just not raising the bar high enough. And the, the analogy that I use is, you know, we'll take Tony Vitello at TCU, and, you know, I can guarantee you that TCU is going to go 56-0 and 0 this year and win every single game. I can guarantee you. It's simple. But what we, need, what we need to do then is we need to drop out of the Big 12 and go play uh, against 12-year-olds mm-hmm. because we'll win every Right, but that's not fun. That's not a challenge. Right. And the challenge is finding out how good you do against the best of the best. And Tom, I go back to my junior year of high school, and for the high school dad or coach or athlete that's listening to this, and who, who's good, who's a you know a, a prospect out there where they're listening in St. Louis or wherever they are nationally, you need to find those places where you're going to be put out of your comfort zone and make getting out of your comfort zone a daily requirement. And that may be having to go to a, a showcase where you're going to play uh, or go down and, and, and go play in a tournament in a different out part of the country where the teams are, are more competitive. You know, and, and I, got, I got false perceptions of reality when I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts and thought I was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then I go, to a show, I go to a showcase at Clemson University. You know, I'm one of, it's an Eastern United States showcase. I'm one of four players from New England who's there, one of a few players from Massachusetts. I'm going in there thinking I'm going to be the best player and I'm going to get recruited by Clemson, and I'm the worst guy there. I'm throwing 84, 86. Guys are throwing 94, 96. We're taking BP. I'm trying to hit line drives. And they're trying to hit balls out of the park. you know. And they had one kid who hit like 12 balls in a row out of Clemson in a home run, dirty as a ju- in a home run derby as a junior in high school, and I'm going, dude, there's a completely different level of player out there, and I'm, right. um, then I lost. Well, then I, you know, and it, worked, it was good and bad. I lost confidence in myself because I thought, holy cow, there's so many guys that are better than me. I'm behind the ball, but I also picked up my work ethic like you would never have seen because I knew that I wanted it really bad and I had a lot of work to do. And you know, anytime you get in those situations, Tom, another you know way to way to reframe your perspective is not to look at it as good or bad. Mm-hmm. Look at every is good and bad. Mm-hmm. And when you go out, I used to go out and play, I was always, did I pitch good today or did I pitch bad today? Did I, did I pitch good to this hitter or did I pitch bad to that hitter? And you got to break it down even more to that, to pitch to pitch. And with every single pitch, there's going to be some good and some bad. Mm-hmm. And when you shift from a 
place of good and bad from good or bad, you know, good or bad is up and down and inconsistent emotionally and mentally. Uh, and you got those peaks and valleys where good and bad is just a machine of consistency in every sport, every walk of life. If you watch somebody who is a champion, they're consistent yet they're back. Well, and that good and bad brings about a balance, you know, again, that from a mental standpoint can be extrapolated to so many other areas. Brian, we're going to head to a break uh, quickly here. Can you stick around for a little bit longer with us? Because, uh, again, you're giving us great information, just as Tony did. This is really valuable stuff for our listeners. So uh, can you can you hang on while we take a break? Absolutely. Okay, great. We are broadcasting live from the Bomarito Automotive Group Studios on 590 The Fan, KFNS, KFNS.com. We will be right back with Brian Kane. You're listening to Mind Games, presented by Cornerstone Mortgage on Ledoux Road. And we are back on Mind Games Radio. Your host, Tom Mickler, joined today by peak performance and mental conditioning coach Brian Kane. And Brian, again, in that first segment, wow, uh, a lot of great practical information right to the point. Speaking of getting to the point, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what you do with an athlete and or a team when you're called in to work with a situation? I'm guessing that you do some type of an assessment first. But give us an overview, Brian, of what this looks like. Sure, Tom. Great question. I think when I first go in, obviously you need to go in and figure out what the needs of the program and the needs of the individual are. One thing you cannot do is you cannot cookie-cut mental conditioning and sports psychology. Mm-hmm. You can't go in with a packaged program. You have to go in and find out what the needs are. So there's an extensive assessment that we go through in the beginning, asking a lot of questions, trying to find out you know, what the needs are. And then I try to create a program that can be executed, you know, by the coach or by the athletes himself, whether that's through giving them videos, giving them articles or books to read, videos to watch, so that they can do a little a lot, not a lot a little. You know, mm-hmm. I tell coaches, like, Tony, bring me in. Hey, it's not, it's not the three days we spend together that's going to make a difference. It's the three months of what you do after I leave that's going to make the difference. So I really try to empower the individual to have a program that they can follow and kind of help you know monitor that program as they go through it. I'm guessing, though, once you set up shop for a little bit, people want you to stay. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I, I've been very fortunate. A program like TCU, one of the top baseball programs in the country, I've been in you know anywhere from three days to 15 days a year since 2006. So I always look at it as a compliment when, it, when a team brings me back and they, they want to do it again. Uh, but I also look at it as a compliment when a team says, hey, Brian, you feel like you've given us a really good system and package to follow, and we feel like we can do it on our own. So it's probably a terrible business model in the sense that I coach <laughs> myself out of a lot of jobs, I think. But, uh, you know, ultimately that's the only way I know to do it is to give it to the individual, ultimately, you know, working to make coaches better so that they can do it on their own, and ultimately they don't need me. Um, but, you know, a lot of programs will have you come back in every year because, you know, just like they're trying to get better at the X's and O's of the game, Tom, I'm trying to get better at the mental game and find more efficient and effective ways to teach. Well, sure. If, if you're espousing lifelong learning, then you're going to do that yourself, and you're going to be the model. And in a lot of ways, you have to be the model uh, to begin with. And, Brian, can you talk a little bit about some of the common issues that you run into, whether it's at the individual player level or at the team level? 
Sure. Well, it's funny how you mentioned the word model. You know, Steve Smith, who's the head baseball coach at Baylor, and last year Baylor had the best baseball season ever in the Big 12. They won like 21 straight games in the Big 12. And one of the things that Steve said was he said, you know, Brian, our players don't need a motto to stay. They need a model Steve. Mm-hmm. And you know, Steve, Steve opened up my eyes to that, and that really the best programs, you know, have the coach who's out there being the model of mental toughness. And look at Nick Saban, focus on the process over the outcome, you know, and you see that everywhere. So I think some common issues I see from coaches is they think that the mad mental game is a magic bullet that I that they bring someone in, myself or someone else, for two days and it's going to fix all their issues. Uh, and what they fail to realize is that mental conditioning is a program that you go through on a daily basis, just like strength and conditioning, and it becomes kind of the underlying foundation of your philosophy and your core values of your program. Mm-hmm. And it's not a one-and-done, is what I hear you saying. It's just as much a, a part of the regiment as the physical uh, work, as the physical workout is. True? Yeah, 100%. 100%, Tom. You know, and I believe that the road to excellence has no finish line. You know, if you're hiking this mountain of excellence, baby, you can see the summit, but you just can't get there because it's always getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, there's never, you never get there. Once you feel like you get there, you're really far from there. You sure. know, and it's those people who are learners first that are always learning and always seeking new information to get better at what they do that makes them brilliant and makes them genius. And I think when you look at overall sports, probably the guy who I've worked with who has impressed me the most as a learner is UFC welterweight champion George St. Pierre, you know, and he's a guy who uh, has what they call the humble confidence. He's humble knowing that he can get beat anytime he steps in the cage by anyone, but he's confident to know that he can beat anyone when he steps inside the cage with him. And George is a learner first and a guy who, you know, uh, is as scientific and systematic in his training as any athlete that I've ever seen. It's truly impressive to see. Brian, have you had the experience, though, where you had to go to a coach and say to them about a player, you know what, I just I don't know that he's going to be a good fit. I, he's not either taking what I'm saying or uh, doesn't have the mental makeup or the physical makeup. Have you had to, to approach a situation from that standpoint ever? You know, I have, and it's interesting, Tom, because in this world that I'm in, you wear a different hat. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you and you have to be open and honest in your communication and clear from the get-go. And sometimes you go into a program and a coach says, look, I want you to be a, a, a confidant for our players and somebody who our players can come to, and we're not ever going to ask you about what you talk about with them. And some other coaches say, hey, if you, you, know, if you find out some information on our players, we want you to relay that to us so we can best help them or so that we can maybe eliminate a cancer before it takes over in our program. So that's kind of the first conversation I have with coaches, and I let players know that, you know, right out of the get-go, so that everything's above board. And I've been in programs where I've met with players and, and observations and just said, you know, coach, I don't think, I'm not sure this guy is a fit, because ultimately the coach is bringing me in to win. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe not be a fit. And then there's other programs, you know, and where the coach will then maybe remove that player, And but in most programs, the player or the coach would say, all right, well, let's call that player in here, and let's all get on the same page, and a personal development plan to help that player be who we need him to be and who he needs to be to have success. And if he's not willing to do that, he's essentially cutting himself. So mm-hmm. most of the time, you know, it's very confidential, private work that stays between me and the athlete. Um, but there's also times where coaches bring me in more of a college baseball consultant uh, than a sports psychologist. And they're saying, you know, break down our entire program, every player, every staff, our academic coordinator, our strength coach, and give us all the feedback 
about what we need to do to take this to the next level. So it really depends on what they want. Sure. Now, you're talking about a lot of experience at the college level. Uh, if we if we back up a step and go to the high school level, a little bit different set of dynamics. You have you still have parents that want to be involved and that want to get in the coach's face and tell them what for and what the coach should be doing. College level, I think there's more of a general acceptance that this is a young adult now and it's up to them to handle it. But as far as at the high school level, Brian, what does that look like that, that, it, that differs from the college level for you and your experience in, in dealing with a different set of dynamics? Um, the number one thing I see is, is recruiting. You know, and in college, you get to pick your team. And in high school, you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, in high school, you take high school you take who walks in the door. In college, you determine who walks in the door. You have a choice there. So, you know, in high school, obviously, uh, a little bit more adolescent, you know, 14 to 18, college 18 to 22, 23. So uh, you can have a different sort of relationship, you know, with a child versus with a young man. And... Uh, you know, parents are definitely uh, a, a factor at the high school level, and you know they can be for you or they can be against you. And ultimately, I think as a coach at the high school level, you have a tremendous responsibility not only to educate your players, but you got to educate your coach, your, your coaches, and your parents too. And I think a lot of times, you know, as a high school athletic director uh, and now as a consultant who goes around to different high schools, I see the coaches who have the best relationships with their parents at the high school level and have the best, strongest booster clubs and the most support, it's because they foster that relationship. It's like anything else. A relationship's not going to grow unless you're committed to it and do things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of high school coaches also maybe had that one parent who has had a negative impact on their career because, you know, parents can do that. Um, and it's kind of tainted them for all parent involvement. So, College level, I think you just have a, you know, a layer of protection from that. And, but I'll tell you what, Tom, it's not uh, immune to that at all. I mean, there's definitely parents who put their head and their nose into the college athletic scene, but often when that happens, uh, a college coach has a little bit more flexibility of saying, hey, you know what, mom and dad, if you're going to have this conversation with us, your son is not obviously uh, mature enough to do that, so we're going to send them down the road to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't do that at the high school. Right, right. Brian, I need to squeeze in one more quick break. Can you hang around uh, a few more minutes? Because I want to talk a little bit about some of the books that you've written because I think, again, readers and listeners are going to find tremendous value as well in that. Can you hang on for a few more minutes with us? Yeah, not a problem. Okay, we're uh, broadcasting live on 590 The Fan, KFNS, KFNS.com. We will be right back with Brian Kane. Listening to Mind Games, presented by Cornerstone Mortgage on Ledoux Road. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm your host, Tom Mickler, and joined by Brian Kane today, who is a peak performance and mental conditioning coach. Uh, Brian, what I'd like to do at this point in time, if you wouldn't mind, is ask you to share with us your approach with athletes from the standpoint of developing a routine whether it's a pregame routine or a pre-workout routine. Uh, talk a little bit about that as far as, you know, uh, a very important way for the athlete to get focused. Yeah, Tom, I think routines are critical to your success and being consistent. And, you know, Jim Collins, the author of the great best-selling business book, Good to Great, yep. says that to be consistent over time, you have to describe what you do as a process, a.k.a. you have to describe what you do as a routine. 
So for athletes, you know, pre-practice, we often say select one to three things that you do to help you shift from being a student into an athlete. And we have them do very specific physical things to help them leave their student self behind them or leave what I call the Boy Scout behind them so that they can shift into the bounty hunter and the athlete. Mm-hmm. They have to have a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more competitive mentality on the field than they do in the classroom. So some of the common three things we'll use would be turn your cell phone off when you get in the locker room. That accomplishes two things. One, it says goodbye mom and dad, goodbye <laughs> school, goodbye significant others. And they turn the phone off and then are able to get engaged with their teammates in the locker room, which is critical because these days people just don't talk to each other anymore. They're too busy on the phone. You're right. And then the second thing we'll do is have them change their clothes. And as you change, and if anyone listening to this, if you're a father or a mother listening to this in your car, well, when you get home from work, go in and change your clothes from your work clothes into your mom and dad clothes. Just like we ask students to come in and change out of your school clothes and into your athlete clothes. Then the last thing we do is we call use the shoes. When you lace up those spikes, it's on. That's the last thing you do that says, I am in, I am present, and I am focused on what I need to do today to dominate this day as an athlete. You know, and then post-practice routine so that they leave you know, their athlete behind them and separate between the two because a common mistake I see in athletes is that they see, let's take baseball, for example, they say, hey, baseball is what I do. And baseball is not what, you know, or they say baseball is who I am. And baseball is mm-hmm. not who you are. Baseball is what you do. It's not who you are. So you better have a process and a routine you go through to end practice to let that go, and that's going to just be reverse of what we talked about. When your spikes come off, you're starting to let go of the athlete. Then when you change out of your uniform into your street clothes, you're picking up all the street clothes and stress and things you got in your personal life and leaving your athlete behind. And then when you turn your phone off, that's the last thing you do that says, sports over, hello, rest of the world. And then from a, uh, you know, just from a, a in-competition standpoint, inside of the routine, let's say pitch-to-pitch in baseball, shot-to-shot in golf, play-to-play in football, we want our athletes to do three things. Number one, we want them to take a deep breath as they focus on a what we call a focal point. And that's going to look like, uh, you know, take Pedro Alvarez with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's going to look at a spot on his bat and take a deep breath. And that spot is the, the barrel of his bat, which is called the focal point, where he says, if I can look at that and take a deep breath, that puts me in the present moment. second thing we use is called a final thought. If you step both feet in the batter's box or you step up to get in your – position as a wide receiver on the line of scrimmage was the last thing you say to yourself, last conscious, positive thought. And then the third part of the routine that you have to have in competition is a release. So that when things aren't going your way, and you get what we call red lights and you got negativity or self-doubt, uh, what is it you do to release that negative energy? And it might be as a hitter stepping out of the box, your back goes under your arm, undo your batting gloves, might be knocking dirt off your spikes as a receiver in football might be undoing your chin strap, basketball, soccer player, it might just be clapping your hand. Mm-hmm. So they've got to have those those things they do pre and post game and also in game to keep them consistent. Awesome. Uh, I'm taking notes as you're writing, Brian. I'm going to ask you, you to... you going to use some of the stuff on the, on the golf course? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if that's going to be enough to tell you the truth. Uh Let's talk a little bit about your books before we we let you go. Brian, this is Valentine's Day, uh, the day we're taping this commercial, and I don't want to get you in trouble with any significant others, so if you got to get to the store still. But before you go, talk to us about the books that you've written. Well, first thing, Tom, is I went shopping five years ago for Valentine's Day, and I thought, I'm not going to do this every year. So I bought ten cards, (laughs) ten bags of socks. 
So that was my routine that every year on Valentine's Day, I know I go over to this little cubby in my desk. It's all there. I'm writing so, that one down too. <laughs> yeah, right. The three, uh, the three books that I have that I have penned uh, and authored. You know, the first one was Playlist Brick, Fish Hooks and Pride, which has actually become a number one bestseller. Um, you know, it was used by the Alabama softball team in their run to the 2012 NCAA National Championship. And fortunately for me, Holly Rowe of ESPN held up a copy of the book during the national championship in Oklahoma. <laughs> and uh, that helped me to become a number one bestseller for sure. And then the second book in the Masters of the Mental Game series is called So What Next Pitch. And even though it has a baseball softball title, it's actually just a, a general performance book. And I've got interviews in there with you know, a coach in Iowa who won 88 straight baseball games uh, with Patrick Murphy, who won the national championship at Alabama, uh, and with Dan Gable, who is the legendary wrestling coach at the University of Iowa, all sure. saying similar things about the process of success. And then the third book is called The Mental Conditioning Manual. And the Mental Conditioning Manual uh, is, is a about a 350-page book with 18 chapters, which breaks down all aspects of mental game and mental toughness. So if you were to say, you know, Brian, what's your program? You take guys through, uh, take athletes through, they would pick up the mental conditioning manual, and that's going to be their introduction to what we're doing. Uh, it's interactive. You know, I wrote the book so you could write in it and answer questions, and also there's links in the book that you can follow online and see various videos and download things to help your mental conditioning program. So for the people listening to this, if they're interested in picking up those books as well as maybe some of the DVDs, DVDs that I've come up with, they can just go to briancane.com. It's the www.briancain.com, briancain.com. And they can check out my products page. And they can also sign up for my free newsletter. And about, you know, a couple times a month, uh, more so here as we approach the college baseball and softball season, uh, I send out a newsletter that's going to have great information in it that, you know, the, the athlete or the coach or the parent can take and use. They can also follow me on Twitter every morning when I wake up. The first thing I do as a part of my morning routine is I tweet. Uh, I tweet out some kind of motivational message for the day. My Twitter handle is at Brian Kane Peak, B R I A N C A I N P E A K. They can follow me on Facebook and see some of the videos and things I post there, and really try to create value, Tom, for for the the followers and, and the listeners out there, so that they can go and get some of this information because. You know, ultimately, we're all going to die, man. No one's making it out of here in life. And mm -hmm. Every day I live, I try to try to think about how I can leave this world a better place and what my legacy will be, and hopefully my legacy will be that of a teacher, that of somebody who is a giver, and somebody who helped uh, make the world a better place by empowering people with mental conditioning, one person, one piece at a time. Well, I think that you've done that today, Brian, as far as supplying value. So, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and take this step now and ask you to consider coming back and, and talking with us some more because I think, you know, it's one of these interviews where we could talk all day and uh, just learn a ton. But let's break it down. We'll leave it right here, and we will ask you to consider joining us again in the very near future. Would that work for you? Absolutely. And if, uh, you know, you're out in St. Louis, for the people out there watching, Matt Carpenter, left-handed hitter with the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, was a guy who I started with at TCU. And, you know, if you watch his, like we talked about routines and, the way they play the game. If you get a chance to watch Matt Carpenter, or if you're out there and go to St. Louis uh, and get to get to meet him at all, he is a guy who uh, has endorsed the mental game. And I've actually got another book coming out called Inexpensive Experience, Athletes Tell All, 
And Matt Carpenter's got a chapter in there where he talks about his mental mental approach and what he does to be his best on a piece of golf. It's really, really interesting. But I tell you what, that's impressive because Matt Carpenter came on the scene last year and became a 300 hitter, and I think he's going to be a very important piece for the Cardinals in the coming years. If he makes it in the starting lineup, hopefully, if not coming off the bench, he is going to be a valuable piece. Also, hey, before you go, this weekend we've got the Ole Miss and the TCU Brian Kane Bowl, don't we? Hey, absolutely. You know, to, uh, I started working with TCU in 06 and picked up Ole Miss in 2009 and you know, those two heavyweights are uh, number 10 and 11 in the country right now, and they're actually playing opening weekend of college baseball down in Oxford. There'll be about twelve or 13,000 fans there. And, you know, if there's any place to be this weekend, it's probably there. And for the people who are, are listening, uh, if they go, you know, to the Old Miss website, uh, you can actually watch the game online there. And it'd be a, just a great opportunity for them to see Tony uh, with, with TCU, but also for them to get to see the mental game in action and see exactly those routines and releases and things that we were talking about online. Um, I think there, you know, the times are available online, but I know they're playing Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you know this this may be a match that you see in Omaha. I mean, these two teams mm-hmm. are that good, uh, and you know the coaches are that good. And Jim Slotsnagel at TCU is the Team USA head coach this summer, and Mike Bianco, who's the head coach at Ole Miss, is his number one assistant. So it's it, it, it's going to be a fun highly competitive weekend that uh, I can't wait to see. Well, I'll tell you what, Brian, if I don't cut it off here, I don't think I ever will. So thanks again, and we will talk to Brian Kane very soon. Brian, enjoy the rest of your day. Appreciate your time. Okay, let's head to a break on 590 The Fan, com. Okay, we are back live in the studio. This is Tom Mickler, and I've got my notes in front of me, uh, again, from just having a chance to listen to Brian's interview and, uh, you know, really what I'm going to actually do right now is is jump over to the arena of coaching. Brian was talking a lot about working with athletes, working with the teams. but uh, And he said that, you know, he'd like to come back sometime soon. And I was really glad to hear that because I want to hear, I want to tap more into what he's doing with coaches. Um, because I think, you know, in the work that I'm doing currently in terms of sports counseling, especially at the high school level i enjoy working with the athletes and i want to work with the coaches even more so i think that there there's a need there and the way i would put it is uh, i think a need to help coaches understand what their roles really all are all about and not that i have all the answers but if we can continue to bring in a number of resources for coaches in the area that want to learn more now we had a coach last week on the show judd nager who is the coach of valley catholic high school in st genevieve and judd had sent a powerpoint to me uh about his approach, and I want to read the closing quote to you right now, and then I'm going to move on, but uh, Judd writes, is his final thought in his PowerPoint, I've come to the frightening conclusion I am the decisive element on the football field. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is the daily mood that makes the weather. As a coach, I possess tremendous power to make a a child's life miserable or joyous. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated, de-escalated, and a child humanized or dehumanized. So, again, we've had a lot of great sports counselors on the show, but, you know, from a coaching standpoint... You realize that you're the decisive element in what you're going to do as far as the impact you're going to have on your players. 
We're going to come back to that theme in coming weeks. Right now, though, what I'd like to do, I don't really think I've ever done this before, is is give you a little bit of a preview into next week's show, and, and a fair amount of it is going to be about coaching. I've asked my son, Michael, to join me for the last couple of minutes. Michael is the voice of St. Louis soccer, according to Tom Schwarz, and you want to listen to the soccer show coming up next. I taped an interview earlier this week with one of the technical managers from Ajax Cape Town Soccer Club, Jan Preen is uh, a world-class instructor. And the question that we're going to deal with, you know, a lot of talk about can the U.S. win a World Cup, you know, is our program getting better? The question that I pose to Jan Preen of Ajax Cape Town is, is the nine-year-old Dutch player that much better than the USA nine-year-old player? And if so, we're behind the curve already at that point in time. So I'm going to ask you to write that down and pay attention try to catch next week's show as well too but michael had a chance my son had a chance to accompany myself and my brother terry the dutch touch soccer camp in the spring of 2009 to holland and i want to hear michael if you would share with us your general experience of training with the dutch and what that was like and then we'll get to your thoughts about the nine-year-old here versus the nine-year-old in holland but first of all quickly tell us what was your experience like in training and working with the dutch Training with the Dutch was definitely a very intense experience. Uh, the intensity level was a lot higher than I would say your typical practice over here is. Uh, the coaching over there is phenomenal. Uh, all the coaches are always on top of you, making sure that you're doing the right thing, and they really uh, demand perfection as far as like the little details, passing it to the right foot, leading the player if he needs to, or passing it to his feet if he needs to. So they're definitely on top of the details over there for sure. You know, I noticed that right away too. Uh, the team, we had a chance when we went in 2009, and this happens every year, uh, practice, the coaches got on the players because they didn't put all their equipment in the right spot on the bench. That kind of detail. Yeah. But quickly, your thoughts. Is the 9-year-old Dutch player better than the 9-year-old USA player? I'm going to have to go ahead and say yes just because of the coaching at a young age. Uh, that's definitely focused on a lot more over there. Okay, may I, I may have you sit in next week also when Sounds we good. review Jan's uh, interview. So we're going to head to the end of the show here, and I'm just going to repeat what I said in using Judd Negger's words again. And I've come to the frightening conclusion on the decisive element on the football field. It's my approach that creates the climate. I can dehumanize or humanize a child. I can humiliate or hurt or heal. So these are themes that we're going to continue to address on Mind Games Radio. I thank Brian Kane so much for joining us, and he will be back on the show too. Hope everyone has a good day. We are over and out on Mind Games Radio.